Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm one of the senior editors of the journal Global Summetry. It's my pleasure today to introduce again uh, Eve Tiberjan of the University of British Columbia. Uh, our conversation it represents the first of a, what I hope to be a series of discussions and commentary on uh, Japan's G20 summit, which recently concluded uh, in Osaka. Even I uh, discuss the implications of these uh, Trump meetings for global governance, uh, and then also examine what even others have called the top-tier issues uh, in the global governance arena, namely international trade and uh, climate change action. Very importantly, and I mentioned it in uh, the last invitation we had for Eve, Eve spent several years working in Japan and has focused a good deal of his research on globalization, examining China in particular. He specializes in comparative political economy and international political economy with an empirical focus on China, Japan, and Korea. So it's a real pleasure to invite uh, Eve into the virtual podcast studio, and then I hope you will enjoy not only his conversation on the Osaka Summit, but the follow-ups from a number of uh, our other colleagues uh, from the United States, from Europe, China, and Japan. So let's join Eve now in this first conversation. So it's a pleasure to have you with us again, Eve. Uh, are you there? Yes. Great. Pleasure to be here. Okay. Well, as, as I've mentioned to the audience, you're kind of our first one in to look at uh, the Osaka G20 and, and to also then more generally f uh, focus on global governance, obviously including U.S.-China relations, but Europe, et cetera, et cetera. So um, let, me, let me start with this question, Eve. It's hard to put this summit that just recently finished in Osaka into context. How does one describe it when we have these series of Trump events meeting with uh, China's Xi Jinping over the U.S.-China trade war uh, and all the tariff questions, his encounters with Vladimir Putin and, and the breakfast with the Saudi crown prince, and, of course, then a meeting with Kim uh, Jong-un at the Korean DMZ just after the completion of the summit. So how do you capture this particular summit in Japan? Um yeah, it's a very, very strange G20, some like uh, previous ones. Uh, there was a lot of noise and confusion in any way. <laughs> they, there's a lot of uh, activity. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the end, uh, you know, it's quite short on long-term institutional outcomes that can stick. Um, and it's high, of course, on images and, uh, you know, short-term uh, events. Mm -hmm. uh, so symbols, in other words. A lot of symbolism, some yeah. of them bad. Yeah. Uh, we can go over, for example, how uh, Trump treated his host, the Japanese, which is uh, as bad as it gets in the U.S.-Japan <laughs> relation uh, history. Uh, why um, was that? We might as well try to, you know, kind of put that to, to rest. What, what was the problem there? 
Well, so the Japanese side uh, put a lot of effort in this G20, which was new. They had been less engaged in the last 10 years, uh, and it's before the election in July, the upper house election. Mm -hmm. uh, so they really invested in first trying to get some outcomes uh, across the board, um, and yet some of the major issues got stunted, uh, so some initiatives couldn't go forward. Mm -hmm. But in addition... Uh, they did uh, a huge effort to host President Trump as as well as possible. They allowed him to come uh, a month before to visit uh, the emperor, to be the first person to visit the emperor from outside. Uh, a lot of effort. And yet, as soon as uh, Trump left uh, the U.S., in fact, while he was leaving, he started already by saying that he's not happy with the trade relation with Japan and he's not happy with the U.S.-Japan alliance. Uh, and that he, he was musing with ending it, which is the, ab the absolute taboo in a post-war Japan. Uh, and so that set the tone. And then it was followed by a very short meeting, only 35 minutes uh, in the bilateral between Abe and Trump, mm -hmm. while Trump 90 minutes with Putin and 80 minutes with Xi Jinping. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, in the end, there is no uh, gratitude for the efforts that the Japanese put. Is this how, you know, Japanese media, Japanese uh, commentators have reacted to Abe's efforts? Uh, no, there's more diverse, more diverse picture. Uh, first of all, essentially, they still emphasize the fact that, uh, you know, that the host, the Japanese host managed to... Uh, to hold the essential, I mean, they still communicate. There's still quite a bit of things inside. We're going to discuss this. Yeah, uh, it is the, as good as well as he could. Mm -hmm. uh, so some positive outcome. Second, there was a very positive uh, meeting with Xi Jinping. So the Japan-China relations are uh, warming up. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and third, they say, well, the Trump party was no surprise. So so in a way, it's de-emphasized. But there are still some voices criticizing it uh, and saying uh, it was unfortunate. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, so back to kind of the big picture view from you as to how do we characterize this actual, you say it's strange, so what further do you have to say about uh, this whole summit? Uh, so I would say, uh, so the overall, I would make three evaluations. Okay. Uh, first is at the very high level, for issues that matter uh, enormously right now for the future of the global economic order, like trade, like climate change, uh, and other things, uh, you know, the future of the dollar, for example, uh, there was a conflict and essentially very little outcome uh, that matters. I mean, it's very soft language, very stalemate, essentially. Uh, and they kicked the can down for 22 to a 2020, etc. cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, second, uh, for uh, a whole range of issues that are second level issues but more technical, still important uh, on data management, on e-commerce, on infrastructure, on other environmental issues like oceans, mm -hmm. uh, etc. Uh, there was continued progress and there was, uh, you know, in a way, the machinery of all the organization, international organizations like the OECD and BSIS and others. And all the committees and all the Sherpa meetings and ministerial meetings continue to churn and to generate some progress, even though it remains at the second level. They can't touch the, the issue at the level A. Uh, there is an interesting compromise that's still worth uh, mentioning, mm -hmm. where the U.S. did accept to promise to go forward with IMF reforms in 2019, quota reforms, yes. which would mean an increase in the share of China's share. 
uh, not a decrease in U.S., but decrease of European and others. Um, and on the Chinese side, there was a compromise over so-called quality infrastructure, which was a Japanese code word to kind of uh, constrain the Belt and Road Initiative. So they reached compromise. So the, this is those are examples of things that went forward. Uh, and then the third uh, dimension of this summit is the very high level, high tension high strategic value uh, bilateral meetings, particularly the Trump-Xi uh, meeting. But there were also interesting uh, uh, meeting, of course, between the U.S. and uh, and, uh, and Russia. The meeting was put in. There was two triangular meetings involving uh, India, uh, one with Japan and the U.S., one with Putin uh, and China. Uh, there was... Uh, an interesting meeting that was supposed to happen between Brazil and China that was cancelled at the last minute hmm. uh, and a very interesting bilateral between Japan and China so a lot of those bilaterals but to evaluate the outcome and first of all the outcome on the trade side between US and China uh, it's astonishing but we can't do it yet we don't have statements we don't know what's going to stick we don't know what's just photo op and what's going to be real Mm -hmm. to, to this day, several days after the G20, we cannot say if there was sufficient momentum to reverse uh, the descent into a trade war uh, or uh, whether it was just a very short-term temporary halt. Yeah, and my understanding was that Xinhua didn't publish anything. Uh, and so there's you know no detail coming out of the at least the Chinese media side. Um, and so oh, we're... There is there is there is not a communique, but there is a Xinhua summary, mm -hmm. and it's interesting that the two summaries, if you compare them side by side, uh, the one that came out of mostly press conferences, no official communique yet as we speak from the U.S., but they were uh, press conferences by President Trump and then by several officials, including Larry Kudlow, including on TV. Uh, so we compare side by side. You see from the Xinhua side. They emphasize uh, that U.S. tariffs will not be applied uh, without a 90-day time limit. There is no time limit. Uh, and also that there was uh, a request by China that was accepted by the U.S. to treat Chinese companies fairly. Uh, there is no mention on the Chinese communique about the great purchase of agriculture goods that's right. by the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Trump said if there is no agreement, there would be further tariffs. Uh, the Xinhua communique does not mention that. Uh, so there's, uh, you know, interesting gaps between the two, and which gives it an impression, an eerie impression of fuzziness. So, how, I mean, just to wrap it up, at least with respect to U.S.-China, are we looking at what would at best be regarded as a kind of armistice for the moment? So no increase in U.S tariffs, at least a vague promise uh, by the Chinese to purchase um, uh, agricultural goods, obviously soybean and other things. And then thirdly, this question on the purchase by Huawei of technology goods, is that part of what was described by Xinhua or no? No, it's not mentioned by It's Xinhua. not mentioned, okay. And it's been picked up by many observers. I think the interpretation so far uh, is that they, they want to see action first and uh, they, they're very prudent about it. Okay. Uh, and there was commentary by Chairman Ren of, uh, of Huawei who said, uh, 
uh, well, if, if that happens, so that's good, but we, uh, we're ready otherwise and we don't need it. Uh, so there was a bit of a, <laughs> a combative statement by mm-hmm. Rudd. But uh, President Trump has mentioned a meeting uh, in Washington on Tuesday, which would be today, uh, where yeah. particulars would be decided. Uh, the expectations is authorization of a particular, so they wouldn't remove the entity list uh, listing, but they might give uh, an authorization, a short-term authorization for at least selling chips, uh, and totally unknown when it comes to Android. So those are the two hot ones that affect uh, in the short term uh, the future of Huawei, and we you know we don't know at this point. Right? Yeah, and I take it the entity list is a list that the Americans hold, which preclude this sell by Americans to others if they're on that list without approval. Right. So there has to be a license. There has uh, to be a license. So, okay. So the, the easy thing to do is give a license for a number of months and that keeps all options open for the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more fundamental thing would be to remove from the list. But on that, Trump has commented and he said, we wouldn't touch this until the very end of negotiation. Yeah, he said that yeah. aspect is an end of negotiation uh, discussion. Okay. And I mean, how, how, you know, just to complete the picture, how, how do you kind of conceptualize or integrate uh, the effort by uh, our friend uh, to attend in in North Korea for a minute and, and meet with, uh, with uh, the leader, uh, Kim, uh, Kim Jong-un, what, what's that all about? And how does that fit into the bigger picture? So on this one, I'm a little more optimistic as of now, okay. uh, you know, uh, pending further information. But um, what we know, uh, you know, first there was the Singapore meeting last June and President Trump was, of course, uh, very much criticized by all the experts for have, for just jumping to a meeting with Kim Jong-un, which gives legitimacy without uh, preparation. Right. And so while well, the outcome was a pretty vague uh, declaration. Uh, to denuclearize and then eventually to have sanction relief and end of the war. Uh, then they went to Hanoi in, in February, uh, and there they really hit uh, a deadlock, and the deadlock was about the sequencing. Uh, so the U.S. insisted on having uh, all denuclearization first before sanction relief, whereas uh, North Korea wants a gradual uh, process of, on both sides. And what seems to have happened was that uh, President Trump wanted to go a little bit on the way of gradualism, but was stopped by his advisors, mm-hmm. uh, mostly Mike Pompeo and John Bolton. Uh, in any case, there was a complete breakdown. We even know that the two top advisors of the North Korea of North Korean uh, leader Kim Jong Un ended up being uh, demoted. There were rumors that they were executed. We saw them later alive, but they were not at the meeting this time. Oh, so they weren't uh, executed, in other words. But they were demoted. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so here we come to this third meeting, which of course is presented as a complete surprise, but most likely yeah. it has been uh, being prepared over the last two weeks uh, with the exchange of letter coming from uh, President Trump. We noticed that John Bolton was not there. Uh, Mike Pompeo was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the officials on the North Korean side changed. But, um, well, in the worst case, it's just a photo op. Uh, no change, uh, we're still deadlocked. Mm-hmm. In a better case, uh, it could give a bit of momentum uh, for the discussion to restart and possibly the Americans going half the way toward accepting the sort of mutual gradualism. 
Because essentially, if we are realistic today, the all or nothing approach pushed by John Bolton and Mike Pompeo has zero chance of success. Right. I mean, they are they containing North Korea through very harsh uh, 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 sanctions, but the North Koreans will not denuclearize. In fact, they keep building their missiles and they're probably building nuclear weapons as we speak. Mm -hmm. So over the last two years, they have really ramped up their arsenal. Um, but what has a chance is either... Uh, deterrent, so accept a certain level of nuclear weapons, and then after that, uh, freeze and get deterrence on both sides, and then have good protocol, etc., to avoid accidents, or some kind of gradual move to a denuclearization, at least partial one, but where the U.S. has to reward every step, and that there could be a bit of movement toward this direction in this last meeting, the way it has started. <laughs> Other very important thing to mention is Xi Jinping was in North Korea just before the G20. And this definitely had a role. I'm pretty sure that the letter from Trump already brought that possibility and that Xi Jinping and Kim Jong-un discussed it. So there's not a grand secret here. Right. Uh, uh, Xi Jinping right. most likely encouraged uh, Kim Jong-un to do it and also promised maybe some sanction relief from the back door. Okay. Uh, so China has okay. played a key role here. There's no question. I, I guess just to finish it off, uh, at least uh, on the on what was agreed or not agreed, there was a report uh, uh, yesterday, apparently, uh, which said that uh, Trump had basically in his mind now that they that it's more likely that they would accept or the United States at some point would accept a freeze on North Korea's uh, nuclear arsenal and it was rejected by Bolton but i mean does that do does that proposal have any legs well it's long way from becoming yeah. Yeah. formal policy in the US right because the entire uh establishment in the US has uh refused this idea of freeze for, for years, right? Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. the, the consensus across the board in Washington is for complete denuclearization. The only room would be uh, the pathway to get there. But the end, the, the end goal has been unanimous, uh, even though it's unreachable and unrealistic. So in a sense, it's interesting. They are locked in here uh, with a policy that's unrealistic and unachievable. So at some point, you know, as often happens in human history, uh, people have to catch up with reality. But uh, so maybe this meeting, we'll know later with history, maybe this meeting was the turning point that initiated that shift toward a, a, a safer, more controlled pathway, mm -hmm. uh, not an absolute victory. Uh, or maybe it's just noise and uh, it's blocked in Washington and, and Trump just cannot push it through with Washington. Yeah, okay. Uh, to, to kind of draw a curtain on this, uh, uh, you and I had talked earlier about the statement or the uh, uh, article by uh, Shiro Armstrong, uh, the editor of East Asia Forum, which was, to say the least, quite pessimistic. I mean, I'll just... Uh, read a few, a few lines. The Osaka G20 summit, it may yet be remembered in history as the moment of the global rule-based order was lost. There was no mention of the rule-based order in the communique, signaling an edge towards rule by might rather than rule among the major powers. 
the uncertainty that has clouded the global economy over the past few years is child's play compared to what would come now without a major effort by middle powers to avoid catastrophe. I presume you don't exactly uh, concur with that position that he's offered up. Uh, I, I partly, right? Okay. Uh, I agree with the statement that uh, contrary to the promise of what the G20 should be, you know, this sort of board of the global economic system that's supposed to take credible actions and and spur the creation of institutional fixes to ensure stability in the global system, uh, they, there is not much of that here. At the higher level, uh, there is no, uh, you know, long-term oriented uh, institutional creation uh, or really real fix to the global order at a time of great crisis. Uh, they're also very weak when it comes to addressing inequality and populism. They put it in big uh, headings, but the, the sentences that follow extremely weak and, and frail. So in that sense, they are unable to uh, support this rules-based international order uh, at, for the big items. The, this uh, is the G20, the, the, the G20. members. Yeah, okay. At the members, which yeah. is what Sir Armstrong was addressing. Yeah. Um, however, uh, again, there is a second la layer where yeah. there is some progress, and that progress is not trivial, especially if uh, if there is a sort of compromise around the Belt and Road that may end up, uh, you know, the sort of tensions we have had for a couple of years, mm -hmm. if there is actual IMF reforms that would buttress the IMF credibility. So all this is to be followed, uh, but uh, that still matters. Uh, and then finally, of course, the G20 still allows for uh, bilateral meetings at a critical time uh, when in history in the past, uh, at time of great tensions, great misperceptions, great clash of interests, mm -hmm. often leaders couldn't meet and, in fact, could not even correct each other's uh, misconceptions. So the, the bilaterals and multilaterals on the side of G20 still allow for that. Uh, so there is some degree of usefulness, uh, but below uh, potential and below promise and below necessity. <laughs> Uh, okay, so let, let's look at the two tiers that you, the high level tier, uh, briefly, and then talk a little bit more about the mid level tier before we conclude. But the high level tier that, uh, you know, uh, that you've, uh, identified, um, the issues are principally trade, which you've talked about already, really with respect to, particularly to US, uh, China, but more generally, of course, it's America, uh, the, Trump administration's willingness to invoke uh, tariffs against uh, allies and antagonists, you know, antagonists, I mean, basically everybody. Uh, and, and then, of course, uh, the other uh, um, issue, particularly around uh, trade, has been uh, reform, right? Uh, reform of, um, of the WTO in particular. So, so, uh, I take it, and then the other issue, separate issue, is climate change. So let's quickly look at trade. I mean, I take it your view is little was accomplished there. Right. So we know that the trade war and the battle against the WTO are the biggest issues in the global economy today. They are what has been uh, denounced by the IMF and the OECD and everybody else as 
the major risks for the global economy. They are the major dangers for prosperity, for growth. Okay. They're even a major <laughs> danger for, uh, you know, for conflict. Uh, and so what do we see, right? Given that this is the biggest, most important item, what did they do? Well, there's two little article. There's a very short article for uh, upfront. Mm-hmm. And all it says is, Growth remains low and risks remain tilted to the downside. <laughs> Trade and geopolitical tensions have intensified. Okay, fine. Yeah, we all know that. Uh, and then there's Article 8, which is the only one dealing with trade. And essentially, they throw everybody, everything in there, right? A whole bunch of words, free, fair, non-discriminatory, transparent, predictable, and stable trade and investment environment. Uh, this is what we uh, want. And then instead of having a commitment against protectionism, as they had for many years before, right. just, we want to keep our markets open. Uh, and then they all know the WTO needs to be reformed. Well, they say there is necessary reform WTO. We'll talk about it next year. Uh, and they also say we need to uh, reform the functioning of the dispute settlement system. Mm-hmm. They never say how, how? and yeah. is there any progress. Yeah. Or, any hint here, any compromise possible. They just like, you know, throw the wording out there that everybody's talked about and they do nothing about it, which means they can't agree on anything. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and with respect to climate change, maybe you can uh, fill our listeners in a little bit on what was said there. And all these articles that you're referencing, of course, come from the leader's declaration. Uh, so Article 4, Article 8 that you've previously referred to are articles identified within the leader's declaration. Correct. Okay, so what about climate change? So climate, uh, it's interesting. They picked a different approach there uh, because we know coming in that the U.S. was putting a lot of pressure on, on the Japanese to uh, to have a very short, lowest de- denominator paragraph just as happened with trade, right? So that is... Do something small, very fuzzy, general, and then there's nothing in there. And above all, they wanted no reference to the Paris Agreement. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we know that this was uh, blocked by President Macron and maybe others with him. Uh, there will probably be colorful stories about what happened in the night. Most <laughs> likely, the Sherpas had a long night about this because they had no agreement coming in. Uh, in any case, Macron won. Uh, to some extent, because nowadays a big Article 34 in the Declaration that's quite precise. Yeah. Uh, it talks about the urgent need uh, for to address this complex and pressing global issue, a long list of things very precisely. Uh, there is a need for paradigm shift, a strong word. Uh, there is a need for accelerating the virtuous circle and, and the transformation of the economy. Uh, and then Article 35 uh, is about the Paris Agreement, so it's in there. And the signatories to the Paris Agreement say that it's irreversible right. and they're determined to implement it, re- reaffirming what they said in Buenos Aires. Mm-hmm. And beside in 2020, they commit to, to uh, issue their uh, new contribution, their NDCs. Uh, so it's very strong. But unlike in Hamburg or in Buenos Aires, I feel that the cost for that was high. For the U.S. not to block the whole communique because of this, the price is a long Article 36, which is praising the U.S. Uh, so the U.S. insists, you know, reiterates that its decision to withdraw from the Paris Agreement is right, essentially, because mm-hmm. of bad outcomes for American workers and taxpayers. Uh, and the U.S. is essentially the best in, uh, in climate and 
CO2 emissions in the U.S. fell by 14 percent between 2005 and 2017, while the economy grew by 19.4 percent. So, well, thank you, President Obama. We did most of that. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, commitment to uh, new advanced technologies. So there's really two voices here. Yeah. Uh, but I guess the positive outcome is that it was not a given that it would be still 19 versus one. Uh, there was a fear of losing, uh, you know, two or three countries: Brazil, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, were all possible uh, losses from the compromise. Uh, and yet, they stuck with the Europeans on the pro-Paris uh, side. Mm -hmm. Well, then let's uh, let's think about that action. Clearly, uh, at least in this instance, Macron uh, really pressed the envelope, right? Um, and um, we, uh, we meaning the principles of the V20, yourself uh, and Colin Bradford and myself, talked about in our most recent Blue Report um, the notion of uh, effective multilateralism, uh, which we described as today resides in those foreign coalitions that are prepared to move forward on policy and act on a collective action basis, whether they include all members or not. Formal or informal institutions are not the limiting concern. So could we see, you know, that very difficult debate between the United States and basically the other 19 and not quite clear where Japan was on climate change as an instance where, like in Hamburg, uh, you get this kind of uh, effective multilateralism, doesn't include everybody, but, you know, kind of moves at least in some direction uh, the art sticks for meeting the, the challenge of uh, global governance. Uh, right. Yeah, this is probably what's in front of us because as far as we know, uh, uh, well, we have a U.S. today that's determined to fight against all global institutions and all global governance commitments and in general, the liberal international order that was fostered by the U.S. And so for everyone else that really has a stake in this order, um, it, it becomes essential to not just talk and not just be easily scared, but to um, find ways to buttress essential pieces of this order before it collapses. Mm -hmm. Now, it's it's really case by case. It's going to be issue area by issue area, and it will demand uh, both creativity, credibility, and uh, you know, sort of tactical diplomacy and adjustment. Uh, the hot potato is trade. Uh, so a potential idea would be uh, for the EU, Japan, Canada, and all the TPP members to uh, come together uh, and at least uh, first reconcile among the different free trade agreements they have uh, their approaches, their minimum approaches, and then try to upload those new 21st century rules that they have developed in recent FTAs uh, toward a potential new WTO 2.0. Yeah. And then gradually keep the door open to in, to bring in the U.S. and China in whatever order it is. But um, it, it it will be difficult, however, because as soon as a credible coalition comes together uh, that empowers countries like Japan or the EU to kind of push back against the U.S. in their bilateral FTA uh, negotiations mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or against China when they're frustrated by some practices, uh, of course, there will be some bite, right? And the U.S. will try to pick off some people and divide up that coalition. So it's it's not as easy as it looks uh, right. for issues right. like trade that are very, very high intensity and high stakes. 
for others, it's easier. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, say on Marine Leader or on, uh, uh, on uh, Digital uh, Rules Summits possible, just the way the TPP was formed for a club, a group, to kind of work together on better rules and then gradually uh, let more and more people join the club and eventually upload to the global level. Okay. Uh, let me let me just close off on the trade side by you know identifying that um, the, on the Friday of the summit, in fact, the EU and Mercosur, right, which is Buenos Aires, or sorry, Argentina and Brazil and Uruguay and Paraguay, after a twenty-year delay, actually came to agreement um, on a new uh, trade liberalization ag agreement between the EU which uh, and and the Mercosur, which would make it the largest uh, trade arrangement that the bloc has entered into. So that on the positive side, it was there. I guess the question I kind of to balance that was, you hear very little from the EU side or the, uh, the leaders, uh, most notably Chancellor Merkel, you know, to some degree, you hear about Macron, but Merkel, you don't hear much about what what was going on at the same time uh, with respect to uh, the EU and and um, and the activity uh, at the at the G20. Yeah, uh, yeah, the EU leaders were a bit less uh, vocal than in past G20s. Uh, of course, the First, the two leaders of the EU, the head of the commission and the president of the council, were lame ducks. You know, they are about to be, uh, their mandate is finishing. Yeah. Uh, so it is harder for them to take those strong statements and have lots of bilaterals the way they did in previous G20s. I see. I see. Uh, Merkel uh, was clearly tired and um, also all EU leaders were rushing back. Uh, to discuss at an EU summit that ended up taking 17 hours, <coughs> yep. uh, a potential lineup of the leadership of the EU, which they couldn't agree, and then they seem to agree today, but it's very tentative. Mm -hmm. By the way, the, what's coming out of the hat as of today, if it's holding, would be uh, Lagarde, uh, you know, the head of the IMF, uh, Lagarde, coming uh, in as, uh, uh, as head of the central bank. Uh, which will then open a whole can of worms about IMF succession, right? I see. <laughs> it's okay. hard for the Europeans to keep that seat if Lagarde vacates it. True. Uh, by the way, something interesting on Mercosur, uh, I'm convinced that this is why Bolsonaro did not default on Paris Agreement. Including oh, you think it was a quid pro quo, potentially? Because Macron put it as an absolute condition that yeah. there would be no FTA uh, with any country that has defaulted from the Paris Agreement. Now, there is a bit of an iffiness about the U.S., because the U.S. and the EU are negotiating, but, <laughs> but for everyone else, at least, uh, it's, uh, it's the, is the rule. And so clearly that played a key role here. Okay. Well, finally, I just want, do you have, you know, you get out your, your crystal ball. What's your thinking with respect to going forward, with respect to the fact that uh, Saudi Arabia will take the hosting uh, of the G20 uh, by the, before the end of the year. What, what, what's your own view on that? Well, um, they're likely to uh, to invest, uh, you know, significantly in at least ensuring that all the secondary level items go forward and you know competently managed, etc. So I wouldn't worry about the process itself, yeah. you know, the IOs and all this and the meetings, the Shepherd meetings and issues like uh, 
you know, digital tax or BEPS, you know, international taxation, those items will continue forward, right? They're carried over. So uh, the mid-tier initiatives are likely to, those more, which you've described as more technical, like right. the marine uh, plastics, uh, litter, or, uh, plastics, uh, illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing, that kind of, and digital stuff, quality infrastructure, IMF reform, you, you see, foresee those moving forward. Right, and for sure something around energy and energy innovation. I mean, some pet project uh, of the country. Now, uh, the, the toughest part of the G20 is uh, trying to mediate around the great powers to kind of move forward on the big ticket items. Mm -hmm. And that will be harder, uh, especially if, if there is uh, you know continuation of potential conflict uh, around Iran, which would involve the Saudis. Uh, okay. Uh, but in, yeah. or otherwise, I mean, the G20 could have a sort of a professionalization and sort of peaceful impact on the Saudis. Uh, if anything, it may it may help uh, the region, right? But of course, that's if you bracket out uh, the Khashoggi incident, etc. The way right. Trump does, right? So it will affect the civil society engagement. It will affect uh, certain uh, groups, even think tanks, etc. Uh, but I assume that the G20 will just keep going and uh, <laughs> will go through and uh, move on after that. Okay. But it's a long year too, right? Until November. Well, that's right. I mean, and I take it there are in fact uh, meetings. Uh, you know, the the iceberg, which is that ministerials and working groups and so forth, will continue to to meet under kind of Japanese auspices before the, the trade-off to Saudi Arabia. Right. So until November, there's going right. to be all those meetings right. yeah, continuing. Okay. I mean, the Japanese are likely to work with the Saudis, uh, with the Troika. Uh, and uh, since they have built up competence, uh, that would be part of the part okay. of the continuation. Okay. Well, thank you, Eve. Uh, it's a great tour de force here and looking at the, at the various elements of this very unusual G20, I really appreciate your pitching in first instance examination of, uh, of the Osaka G20. You've been listening to the Global Symmetry Podcast with Alan Alexandrov. This episode was edited by Kyle Fulton, and the music you heard was composed and performed by Rory Lavelle. You can find more of his music at rorylavelle.bandcamp.com dot com.